You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands." You shall not take the name of the Lord your, va- your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in with- within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. And as the old prayer goes, now, God, we pray that what we know not, that you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, that you would now make us for the sake of Christ our King in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all here this evening, to meet a couple of you uh, for the first time before the service. I'd love to get to know you and meet you after the service if I haven't. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are now halfway through the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're on our way down on the other side of the hill now. The Ten Words, as they are referred to elsewhere in the Bible. And these are indeed words or teachings. They are more than just commandments. There have been lots of teaching within the Ten Commandments. So if you missed some of the previous five sermons, or you're visiting with us tonight, you'd like to reorient or orient yourself a little bit where we've been and where we're headed, maybe you can uh, go back and find those five sermons on the website or on the podcast, or even be able to locate where these Ten Commandments are coming in the whole story of Exodus that we've been going through over the past many months. Well, until we get to the Ten Commandment or the Tenth Commandment about coveting, though, the pace of the commandments now is going to really pick up, beginning with this Sixth Commandment. Uh, these are what we typically think of, really the Sixth through the Ninth Commandments, and what we think of when we think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's a bunch of like "Thou shalt nots," right? They're short and quick and pithy. Uh, and these are what we think of. In fact, the Sixth Commandment that we're going to think about. Uh, today is just four words in English. In, in English, you shall not murder. In the original Hebrew, it's only two words. Essentially, just no murdering is all it says. So maybe you were tempted to just stay home tonight. Aside from the fact that meeting together here on Sundays is much more than just a weekly, like, pump you up spiritual TED talk or something. There is so much more than just the sermon that is for our spiritual benefit, both personally and in encouraging others. But you might have been thinking, at least the majority of you, that you've never really contemplated, like, hiring a hitman or something, like, to take out your enemies. There has undoubtedly been death surrounding many of you throughout your lives, maybe even in acute ways, in ways that you are even culpable for. But the overwhelming majority of you didn't come here tonight actually hoping that the Sixth Commandment would like talk you out of something. Like you were thinking about whether or not you should kill someone. So praise the Lord you came to church tonight or something like that. In fact, 
If any one of these Ten Commandments is just a given, it's this one, right? Like every modern culture, and in fact, nearly every culture in human existence has some sort of law or rule against murder. If we walked around town t- uh, today and just asked, asked like a, a widely diverse sample of people, I think we would find uniform agreement that murder is not a good idea. Like we could ask the poorer folks, richer folks, we could ask those who are educated or uneducated, we could ask male, female, we could go walk around on the UNM campus or find some investment bankers, and they would all agree that murder is not good. It'd be very difficult for us to find anyone in Albuquerque who says, yes, I think it's a very, very good idea. So do we really need to spend 40 minutes or so thinking about this command? Yes, yes. In fact, since there are only four words here, this has just given us lots of time to make some really deep, practical thought and application in our own lives. Hopefully, just like last week, I hope all of us saw that no matter our age, honor your father and mother is a command that speaks deeply to all of us no matter where we are. Hopefully tonight we're going to see that this commandment might just hit the closest to home. This commandment might be the one that we might need to come in and begin detangling the thorny and viney, uh, choked out joy in our own hearts. This is what this command has come to do through the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. So like always tonight, two sections, understanding the law, and then on the second half of this sermon, we'll think through living the law, especially tonight in practical ways. So we'll keep thinking through some big picture stuff on the law as we go, but understanding the law tonight, today's reflections will kind of be just coming and going and this big picture stuff of the law as we go through. Right now, I just want to give us some immediate understanding of what the sixth commandment is actually commanding. You may be thinking, of all the 10, this one seems to be the most straightforward and clear. And it is. Don't murder. Great. I think we're clear on that. However, there's been some disagreement and serious debate within the history of interpretation amongst uh, Christians and understanding this sixth commandment. After all, if you have a King James Bible in front of you, anybody, uh, what does it say? Perhaps you memorized it as a kid and you didn't memorize it as you shall not murder, and it's not just because we substituted thou or a you for a thou, it's what did you memorize as a kid or if you memorized the King James? Thou shalt not kill, right? Which is very different than what most modern English translations say, certainly the English Standard Standard Version that we're using. So is this a blanket statement about ending any life? Are there any exceptions to ending life? The Sixth Commandment, and then seemingly amplified by the teachings of Jesus, have made many Christians across the centuries into committed and convictional pacifists. Well, there are many other Hebrew words for the kind of killing that happens in military conflict. And it's not this one. There are other words still for the kind of killing that happens for animal sacrifice, that of slaughter. Even other words still for capital punishment and like a death sentence that comes from the Hebrew legal system. And none of those words are the words that we find here in Exodus 20, verse 13. The Hebrew word of ratzach. Byron, am I saying it right? Ratzach. Just low ratzach. No murdering. No ratzaching, everybody. All right? So what does that mean? At its highest level, Ratzach is most easily understood how the ESV and other modern English translations have used it today. You shall not murder. It is a specific kind of killing. It is the kind of killing that is premeditated or at least deliberate, the deliberate killing of another human being. But even that includes some nuance because elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures, Even in the law, ratzach can include other forms of wrongful death, categories that we today would call like manslaughter. There are laws and prescriptions given in the law for when you find yourself chopping wood and the axe head flies off of the handle that you're using and it flies across and hits some other person in the head and kills them. Yikes. That is ratzach also. There are prescriptions for 
keeping a wall around the top of your roof of your house. Why? Because this would be a typical gathering place for lots of people to hang out on, on the roof. And there are laws in the Hebrew legal code to make a wall so that someone doesn't carelessly fall off and you ratzak them. This is even, you, didn't, you weren't deliberately killing them, but your indifference, your carelessness, your lack of foresight for their life actually is what caused their death. And so you're complicit in the ending of a valuable human life. And there are prescriptions in the law given for now what must be done. God takes every human life so very seriously because every single human life is known by him and every single human life is made by him. So even a death that you caused by indifference or that you caused by carelessness is an act of serious weight and serious matter. So to maybe summarize and paraphrase what the Sixth Commandment is actually saying, one scholar says that what the Sixth Commandment is forbidding is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. When you unjustly take the life of someone who is legally innocent. Even more though, to deliberately end a life that God has made and known is for you to take the place of God. How and why? Well, for you to say, yeah, I do not care that God has made this person. I will be the one to end what he has made. I am putting myself over and above God as the authority of life. And this is what Jesus is getting after when he confronts the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He says, confronting the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, which if you think about it, is kind of a strange thing to say. There is no murder in the beginning. Very quickly, we see in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, and perhaps that's what Jesus is referring to, though there isn't any specific reference to Satan in that story. More likely, Jesus is teaching something profound here. He's teaching that only God can create life. Throughout the first two chapters of Genesis, certainly in chapter 1, God is speaking things into existence. He is creating by the word of his power, and things are just coming as he speaks. Only God can do this, right? Like, no other human has this ability to create life. Tom Brady cannot do that. Jeff Bezos cannot create something out of nothing. The most powerful people in human history do not have this ability. George Washington, Henry VIII, Aristotle, even the devil himself cannot do what God does in creating life. But the devil and what many humans following him, what they do is actually remarkably easy, though, is to put yourself over and above what God has created and seek to end what God has created, to become the judge over what is of value, and then make a decision without actual reference to the actual judge. This is what Satan, the, the origin, the force of spiritual evil that has led this world into rebellion against God, this is what Satan has been doing from the beginning, making decisions and leading others into making decisions without reference to the creator of all life. God has created all of life to point back to his glory and to his kindness. From the red woods to red roses to elephants and electric eels, all of creation points to God, but only humans, only humans are created in his image. Only humans are invited into the role of ruling and reigning with God. Yes, it's a middle management role, but it is a role of dignity and honor and value, even authority. Every human, just in their mere existence, carries the image of God role in their life and the potential to live more and more into that role with even more intentionality and love. So to end a life of dignity, to, live, to end a life of honor, to end a life of God partnership, of ruling this 
world, certainly ending a life deliberately, but even through carelessness, is to elevate ourselves as one who is wiser than God, to elevate ourselves as one who is able to make decisions beyond like the barrier veil of creator and creature. We like reach beyond the, the limits that God has placed on humanity to reach in there and make decisions of life and death. Now, before getting into the very real day-to-day applications of this commandment, especially in how Jesus amplifies the commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on what this commandment is not prohibiting. This commandment does not prohibit killing in self-defense. How do we know that? Well, in just a couple of chapters, in two chapters in Exodus 22, there is a specific law explaining that there is no guilt for someone who kills someone who has invaded his home. Now, Christians on this side of the cross find all kinds of disagreement on what it would look like to follow Christ in the moment of home invasion, on what it would look like to follow Christ in that way. And while I find many pacifist arguments to be quite compelling, I don't find it all the way conclusive that a Christian must allow himself and perhaps allow his wife or children, his family, to to die in order to avoid the death of this particularly violent person. Sometimes to save a life and to protect life, to value life, a person is put in a very tragic and unenviable position of choosing to end another life. This is not something that we should look for or get excited about at all. But I don't think it is absolutely conclusive that a Christian must become a pacifist home defender. And this also applies to Christians in the military as well. The American government has historically allowed for conscientious objectors, certainly those in the world wars and in Vietnam who were drafted, who understood the Sixth Commandment to be a blanket prohibition against killing. The the government has allowed uh, these folks to uh, abstain from active duty. But I don't think that a Christian must take this position. In the same way that in the law, God allows for self-defense within the home to protect life, many Christians, most notably beginning with Augustine throughout the centuries, have held to uh, what's called just war theory or just war doctrine. It's not meaning only war or something, but like what is just? There is a war that can be just. Now, of course, the implication is that there can be wars that are unjust. There are many criteria throughout the centuries that Christians have come up with and codified a bit. Uh, Of course, this is not given and handed down straight from the Bible. This is just seemingly wisdom and tradition, but there are many criteria for what makes a just war, criteria like that the war must be defensive and not offensive, the war must be declared by a legitimate authority, the war must be fought with order, it's not just a license for any soldier to just go do whatever he or she wants to, just as long as they're doing it in a land that uh, has been uh, declared war against. But even for soldiers whose consciences find themselves in conflict with what to do, Now, wisdom in the day-to-day life of walking in faith in Christ, everyday soldiers and everyday day-to-day actions and decisions must now walk and act with wisdom and humility. But it's not altogether clear that following Jesus means that you must now, like, defiantly sit on your hands, or if you're in the service now and you become a Christian, that you must go AWOL or something. In Matthew 8, when Jesus encountered the Roman centurion, an official in the army and an official in a government who was absolutely participating in unjust wars, Jesus didn't tell this Roman centurion, he didn't tell him, now that you are trusting in me, quit the army. Now go live a life of righteousness because it will be impossible for you to live a life of righteousness within the Roman army, like go, Roman centurion, and sin no more. This is not what he tells him. He commends the man's faith, and he just sends him on his way. And in Luke 3, some soldiers, they come and ask John the Baptist what they should do in order to repent and to walk in faith as part of the family of God. And again, the answer to that question from John isn't just resign from the army or just go and disappear and just 
stay alone and follow Christ in your decisions now because it will be impossible for you to in the army. No, he simply just tells them. He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. That's all he tells them as soldiers. This could be almost uh, advice or godly counsel given to any Christian of any vocation. So again, what this looks like for many of you military personnel, there are so many of you that I'm looking out at tonight, uh, this perhaps takes wisdom and humility, but as Christians, it is more than possible to walk in godliness and in faith as part of the military. You can walk in godliness and faith in your vocation and to do so in honor. And indeed, for the rest of us, we are so thankful for your desire to serve with your lives and protect those whom you are seeking to protect with your lives and in your vocation. Now, if those are the kinds of killing that Ratzak is not encompassing, and there are others we just don't have time for tonight, let's move on into living the law and consider now what this commandment is actually prohibiting from us. Now, again, based on our confession of sin that we've thought through together tonight and Uh, Perhaps if you've read any of the New Testament and you've read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Matthew about what he teaches about murder in the heart, uh, you know where all this is headed. But before jumping straight there, while many of us have never actually like made a pros and cons chart of whether you should kill someone, and then like thankfully there were more pros than cons, that doesn't mean that you won't. In which ways? There are, I think, three kinds of ratzach that are are very much still off limits for Christians to consider that are these days becoming less and less off limits. And the first is abortion. Perhaps you're joining us for the first time tonight and you're like, oh boy, here we go. Uh, Yeah, just, I should have expected it. Came to an evangelical church and yep, of course they're going to talk about abortion. This is about a hot button of a topic in our current political landscape as we could possibly think or talk about tonight, but we must consider it. Many will argue that this is simply a religious issue and that because some Christians consider abortion to be wrong, that doesn't mean that Christians now get to legislate morality for the rest of society, just like Christians ought not make a law that now every American should go to church on Sunday or that every American uh, can't cuss or something because we Christians don't like cussing. Or even more to the point, with like specific bodies in mind, it would be wrong, I think, to legislate that no American can get a tattoo. Or even more to the point, it would be wrong for Christian legislators to legislate a law that says you are no longer allowed to have sex outside of marriage. But besides the fact that all legislation is legislating some form or value or standard of morality, it is a mistake of category to equate these things, abortion with all of those examples that I've just given. It is not a matter of religious faith to say that you became you at the moment of conception. Yes, even as a zygote, you would months later develop a heartbeat, months later develop lungs, and that only many years later develop the ability to provide for yourself, to care for yourself, and to sustain life apart from other adults in your life. And yet, we can say that you did not come from an embryo. You were an embryo. You did not Become human from a fetal state. You were human as a fetus. You were you. And so we ought to be asking questions like, and again, certainly in Washington or even with our unbelieving neighbor, perhaps the best tack is not to just turn to Leviticus or turn to other places in the Bible in which the Bible is not taken for granted as authoritative. But we ought to be asking incisive questions like, do you believe? oh, American citizen, my neighbor that I love, do you believe that each and every human being has an equal right to life? Every human alive today has an equal right to life. Or do some Americans 
have more right to life based on something that none of us share equally? And if the answer to that question is yes, all human beings who are alive share equally the right to life, is it wrong, or if it's wrong to hurt people because of skin color or gender, why is it okay to hurt humans because they are smaller or because they are less developed or they are more dependent on other humans or they are just in a different location, meaning five minutes before they're just on this side of the mother's stomach and inside her body, and five minutes later, this child is now outside. Does location actually make a difference in whether or not this human should live? Now, of course, there is very little that could be more disorienting, very little that could be more life-changing than an unplanned pregnancy. This is why Christians and churches must have relationships with our communities to come alongside and care for both mother and child, not just at the moment of birth, but ongoingly. And of course, there are also very, very difficult situations of pregnancy by violence. And this is unbelievably tragic. And the sin is just horrendous. The inherent honor and dignity of the mother as an image bearer has been assaulted and has been demeaned. And yet, and yet, we must not justify and then compound the sin against one person now into more and new sin against another person. And this is just so difficult. And I, to just spend like two or three or four minutes on this, I realize is probably just doing us a disservice. But I am confident, along with the overwhelming majority of Christian ethics throughout history, that abortion is murder. And, then, and if that is the case, then abortion is categorically wrong. And it is a great, great evil. The second area that we must consider to be off limits is suicide. Suicide is a horrible, horrible reality. Most of us in this room know someone who has committed suicide. Some who are very close to us. We've all been affected by it, and many in this room have perhaps even personally wrestled through whether or not suicide is a good idea or option for themselves. Suicide is becoming an epidemic. It is now the 10th leading cause of death among all Americans, and amongst Americans who are ages 10 to 34, it is now the second leading cause of death. Now, let me be very clear about something before we move on and think more deeply about this, is that suicide is not an unpardonable sin. And it doesn't automatically signify that the person who took their life was certainly not a Christian. Christians can engage in all kinds of horrible instances and actions of sin, especially when in times of emotional or physical or psychological or even chemical sickness. Just last week, a well-known young pastor committed suicide. It seems like that is happening once or twice a year now. But while we would never counsel a family who is grieving the suicide of a family member in this way, we might say this, that while suicide is not unforgivable, suicide is sin. Listen to what Julie Gossack wrote in the Journal of Biblical Counseling a few years ago. We have this here. Uh, she has suffered through the suicide of five family members, this woman, five family members. And still, she says this, suicide is not a genetic trait nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is the truth. I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful and not righteous. So knowing the statistics, it is overwhelmingly likely that there are multiple people in this room who have considered this, perhaps who even are considering in the present the idea of suicide. And I just want to tell you that even if you feel like suicide is the only option and it is the best and most comfortable option, I assure you that this, it is not the only option. And if you are trusting in Christ, God will, has not put a decision before you where the only option is sin. It is not what God wants 
Suicide is not what your church wants. It is not what your family wants. So we would beg you and plead with you to come talk with us, talk with someone. Share this with those who want to hear you, who want to care for you, who want to pray with you and walk with you for the rest of your days. To take your life is to put yourself above God in determining the what and the when of life and death, which now gets us to our last ever-increasing trend in murder that Christians should never consider, that of euthanasia or assisted suicide. And yes, no matter how we might dress up our language, no matter how we might uh, euphemize our language, euthanasia and assisted suicide are forms of murder or of self-murder. For most of us in this room, this might be the most ethically tricky one. And something that many of you might have already given serious thought to. Perhaps not in the present, but in the future. Not, perhaps not for your own self, but thinking about ailing and aging parents or grandparents. And this often goes hand in hand with what we thought about last week in honoring our father and mother. We thought about just briefly last week that our society celebrates the young and the healthy, but then hides the elderly and hides the sick, hides the dying, shelters ourselves from the reality of death and tries to quarantine it off so that we do not have to experience death or think of it. Our society is one that teaches that the value of a person is based on what he or she can do, what he or she can provide. So when productivity slows or certainly ends altogether, our culture says that that person is no longer valuable. But human life, remember what we have said earlier, human life is inherently, the the value of human life is inherently based on mere existence. But here's where it's getting even more tricky and prevalent today. It is not just the elderly these days who are pursuing this course. Even though the guilt of the elderly, of feeling like they are becoming a burden on family, a burden on society, this guilt is often the driving force. And yet, it's not just the elderly. Behind this desire, behind this desire to seek the ending of your own life, aside from, again, reaching through the veil, reaching through the limits that God has given us as humans, in an attempt to to snatch life and death decisions out from the hand of God who has created life. Behind that desire, though, is the assumption that pain and death are utterly meaningless. And indeed, for the non-Christian, that's an understandable assumption. Happiness and comfort are seemingly our highest cultural value. And the moment... Either one of those are no longer present, then our culture says that there is now no longer any value in living because the discomfort or the unhappiness outweighs the comfort or the happiness. Therefore, there's no meaning. And we can have sympathy for our neighbors who think that they want to decide the end of their own life because they have no meaning in life. Indeed, their culture has been telling them, and they've perhaps been telling themselves their whole lives, that their only value and meaning is in comfort and happiness. So we can have sympathy for those kinds of decisions that they're wrestling through, but God tells us that there is meaning in suffering. Certainly for Christians. Certainly for Christians, both in our participating in the sufferings of Christ, of how God might be awakening how God might be growing our faith and our dependence upon him through discomfort. Sometimes it is impossible or extremely difficult to love God and actually trust him when things are comfortable and merely happy. So as C.S. Lewis has famously said, that pain and suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world to say, I am here and I am trustworthy even through this. But, certainly for Christians, suffering has meaning for the unbelieving world who watches us as Christians. 
who watches Christians and watches their surrounding families die well, hoping not in a quicker and more painless death, but hoping more ultimately in a future resurrection. And seeking and seeing and understanding the end of this life, death as an enemy, not one to be running towards. And yet, like with abortion legislation, Christians should not be unashamed in their opposition against euthanasia and a medically assisted suicide. We only have to look to Belgium or the Netherlands where this has been legal now for a decade to realize that slippery slope warnings are not just alarmist or frantic or unfounded. Now in these countries, teenagers can request and are sometimes and often granted medically assisted suicide, euthanasia for psychological suffering. I am sad these days. Therefore, I can go to a doctor to have him help me in my life. Not to mention, when this becomes an option, either within state-run healthcare systems or in for-profit healthcare systems like ours, it becomes cheaper and more efficient to end life rather than heal. And there is inevitable pressure, even if it is subtle, to choose death as the patient, even in which tra- treatments, healthcare systems, and providers will choose to provide for sick and dying patients or choose not to. And then it becomes basically, there is no choice. I can't afford these ongoing treatments that the the healthcare system will not cover, but they'll cover, well, this one injection, and then we can be done with it. Taking a life doesn't suddenly become healthcare just because you add medical personnel to the process of murder or suicide. Now, I realize that these aren't just theoretical questions be talked about like in a theology classroom or something, and things get very complicated, very nuanced, very difficult when these conversations are happening, not in a theology classroom, but a hospital room. So I, we, we would love to keep talking about these things with you. I would love to have these conversations with you, not just this week, but perhaps five or 20 years from now in a hospital room. These are difficult conversations to have. But all that to say, I've shared this quote with you before, but one Christian Christian philosopher has recently said, in a hundred years, if Christians are identified as the people who do not kill their children or their elderly, we will have done well. A hundred years from now, just looking with our prophetic lens over the horizon, if a hundred years from now, of course this is a very low bar, of expectation. But if a hundred years from now, we Christians, we Christian churches are the people who do not kill our children or do not kill our elderly, we will have done well. And it will speak prophetically against a culture of death. Now let's get back to where we were an hour or so ago when we first read that confession of sin together. We read this. We read together, you shall not murder is one command we boastfully believe to have kept in full. But we have deceived ourselves. We haven't deceived you, O God. Now, why in the world would we have said that? Why in the world would we have said we have deceived ourselves and that we have thought that we kept this command in full? Well, because Jesus walks onto the scene. Israel has been content to try to follow the mere externalities of the law, to make sure that the fruit looks good on the outside of the tree while in fact there is rot. There is uh, just death inside, minimizing the symptoms of what is going on. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, which we'll return to in future weeks because Jesus has a lot to say about the nature and function of the law and even himself as the fulfillment of the law. But Jesus in Matthew 5 essentially says this. He says, you guys are essentially like walking around like high-fiving each other and giving yourself big pats on the back because you've never murdered anyone. You've never hired a hitman. You've never killed someone yourself. You may be even high-fiving yourself because you've never gotten an abortion. You've never helped your grandfather commit suicide. Or you're high-fiving yourself because you've never even carelessly killed someone in manslaughter. 
You've never accidentally driven through a red light and broadsided someone and killed them in that way. You're diligent to not text while you're driving. And so you're just full of high fives. You feel great about yourself, all the while hating those in your heart whom are around you. Your enemy, you're hating them. You're hating a difficult boss. You're hating a difficult neighbor. People in which your culture wouldn't think any less of you for hating them in your heart. But you're even hating in your heart, perhaps not all the time, but in instances and in certain situations, you are hating in your heart those whom you love. And Jesus is just saying, well, good job. Good job, high-fiving. High-fiving the externalities of keeping the bare minimum of the law while ignoring what the law is actually about. Jesus is certainly concerned about life and death and external action. He certainly does not want people to murder one another, but he is far more concerned here with the heart. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. Now there is certainly been centuries of debate on what Jesus is doing with his understanding of the law, beginning in Matthew 5, but to give you one short glimpse of what I think Jesus is doing here, if the Old Testament law were the high striker game at the state fair, you know the one with the sledgehammer, and you hit the thing, and then you try to get the doohickey, the hoo-ha, the thing got to go up and ring the bell, right? Uh, I don't know. What's it called? The, the thing, yeah. No, no, the bell's at the top. You've got to get the thing to hit the bell. Anyway. What? Slug? Sure, yeah, you've got to get this slug to hit the bell. Well, the law, we might say, is like at the 70 mark of the track. The law, like 70 is really good. Like, we would all commend you. Like, good job. Like, you might even get some kind of prize. You don't get the big stuffed animal, but you might get some kind of prize if you can get the slug to hit 70, right? It's really good. It's on the road. It's on the trajectory, the law is, of what God has intended for humanity. But it is not the full and final goal. Not murdering someone, not ending their life is a 70. It's a good thing. It is a command that ought to be considered, thought about, and obeyed. But God is after so much more. He's after your very heart. He's, he's after someone and transforming and making someone into someone who not just doesn't murder someone with their hands, but also does not murder someone with their heart. Because Jesus is a good, good doctor here. He makes a clear and incisive diagnosis of the disease behind the symptoms. Murderers, Actual murderers who end people's lives show clear symptoms of the disease. It is very easy to spot the disease in someone who murders someone. But we are all carriers. We are all carriers of the disease. Like many or most carriers of hepatitis C who can and might show no symptoms. The murder in your heart makes the disease very difficult to observe but you can still see it and you can still spot it if you know what you're looking for, if you know the right kind of symptoms, if you are a very good doctor and Jesus is the best doctor and he spots it. When your roommate leaves the dishes out for the 700th time (laughs) and instead of moving in patience and in love and in confrontation in a godly way again, with your roommate, you walk into the kitchen and you see the dishes everywhere and your blood pressure just begins to go. And instead of patience and kindness, now your first reaction is anger. The disease in your heart which says that the world must be considerate of your needs. When your kids are yelling at each other and instead of using 
this yelling as an opportunity for grace and an opportunity for correction and instruction. You just yell louder to get them to shut up. And the disease within our hearts, the disease of our longing for mere comfort and for peace and for quiet, and if anyone in this world intrudes on my desire for comfort, then they they are owed my wrath. When your spouse just isn't listening, or when your spouse does something or says something that may be even intentionally hurtful, you respond with the same. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. If you lose your cool, I'll lose mine. If you scream, I'll scream. It's the disease that gets angry at other image bearers on the highway or in a parking lot. It's the disease that gets angry at politicians or at folks on social media. It's the disease that hates others who look or act or speak differently than you. Perhaps even hating those that are different than you even at an unknowing or subconscious level. Ways in which that you may not be even aware of. But certainly, it is a disease that is conscious, yet it is still internal. Of course, we can look at those who exude and Uh, show externally racism or hatred of others, and that's more easy to spot. It's more difficult when it is merely internal. But it's festering all the way. All of these are lower expressions of the same and wicked and sick heart of actual murderers. Hearts that say and think that you, person out there, are not worthy of my love. You are not worthy of honor or dignity or care in this moment because I have determined that you are not. I, the God of this universe, have determined that you are not worthy of dignity, so I will hate you. I, the creature, I know better than God whether or not I should honor you as his image bearer, and in fact, I know because I have decided so. I have, you are not. My wife, my child, my coworker, my random driver on I-25, even the writers and designers of this like pack and play who wrote it so horribly. Why did they write it this way? I hate them. I would have written this so much better in, in a way that is easier to understand. It's still the disease that says this person who wrote this is not worthy of my dignity, or is not worthy of dignity, not worthy of my honor and love for them. Wretched and murderous sinners that we are. Who will save us from this body of death? Who will save us from the disease? Who will forgive us of our murderous and sinful hearts? Well, the one who's rung the bell. The one who has rung it all the way. The one who, as we consider the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and afflicted in violence, though he himself committed no violence. While he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, to the killing, to the murder, he didn't open his mouth. He went to the place for murderers, so that for murderers, the cross might become the place of their life. That our sins might be forgiven for all of us, even when they are for sins of actual murder. Actual and external and observable murder, there is grace and kindness, and there is forgiveness for those who have actually taken life. The cross is for you tonight. And by response and by faith in Christ, his grace is greater than all of your shame and your sin. All of it. It's deeper. It's greater. It's more wonderful and glorious. And his life is for you. It's a life that you cannot create that we cannot speak into existence as creatures. We cannot create and speak spiritual life into existence, but the one who has created life can. And he has created and then gives us a spiritual life that then no one has the power to end. No one has the power to take. 
And there's grace and kindness and forgiveness for those who murder each day in our hearts as well. And the good news of the gospel is that he has come not only to give us just a second chance at this, that he's come, into, he's come to like wipe the slate clean of all your hatred and the murder in your heart, but now just try to do better this time, everybody. No. He's come to bring a total transformation of your heart that you might actually be transformed, that you might actually begin to more and more pursue love, that you might act and react, not in anger, but as Christ does, that you might act and react in patience, in kindness, in self-control, and in love, that he might transform and unwrap our dark and dead hearts, breathing life and breathing love. Might he make us into a people who are becoming more and more famous in Albuquerque for our love for the city. Not that we gain a good reputation or something, but that God gets a good reputation because of our lives, because of our love for our city, for the lack of murder and hate in our heart that we are famous for our love for God and for one another and for our neighbors and even our enemies, but that we are becoming more and more famous, not just for being anti-life, that we're famous for being against murder, but the other side of the coin is true as well, that we're becoming more and more famous, that God might get more and more glory for us being so radically for life, for human flourishing in all parts of our city and the world beyond, certainly as it's coming from our heart, the wellspring of life that's begun by the Spirit and the work of Christ on our behalf. Might it be so. Let's keep encouraging one another this week to love one another, to pursue kindness, to pursue self-control, and to put, the, put to death the death in our hearts. Might it be so. Let's ask for God's help. Oh, Father, we confess that we have high-fived ourselves for too long. We have been content with merely keeping the external and the low, low, bare minimum of this command. We pray that we might be confronted with you, the God of life, in the ways in which we have pursued death in our own lives, that we have pursued hatred and the death of others in our own hearts. God, forgive us. We pray that you would give us wisdom in all of these areas. Give us wisdom in how to think through actual end-of-life issues in our own lives, in the lives of our parents, in the lives of our family members, in the lives of our neighbors who perhaps, because of what they have believed their entire life and what they can see around them, there is no meaning in their life and there is no meaning in their death. Help us to encourage and to point to the God of life, to the Christ of life, who offers not just flourishing life in this life through, the, through pain and suffering, but a new body, a resurrection. And it is to this that we look, and it is to this that we hope. In the midst of death all around us, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.